Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Piranha is over. They're eating the guests, sir. There's something strange in the water at Lost River Lake. Something you can't see. Something you can't feel. Until it's too late. Started in a Texas pond. Barbara! Or is there something in here? David! David! Quickest way to know if they're down there or not. What are you doing? You trained a pond? Yes, we found You let them out! They were unleashed into America's waterways to churn quiet streams into rivers of living death. Keep your hand out of the water. What's wrong with the water? Dad! Stay back! Stay back! The world of carnivorous fish. Piranha, the deadliest man-eaters of all. In schools of hundreds, they attack and devour anything that moves with razor-sharp teeth that can strip a man to the bone in less than a minute. Andy. Pete. I'm scared all the time now. I took a shower this morning in Portland, and I kept checking the drain. If I fear a ferocious uh, Amazonian hunter-killer fish is going to swim up my drain pipe, uh, where should I go to, to share my terror and my anxiety? First, you should go to a psychologist or psychiatrist. <laughs> really need to talk to somebody about these fears of yours. 
<laughs> okay. After that, you should head over to Discord and join the conversation with other movie lovers and people who listen to the show. You can chat with them and hopefully they will help bring down those fears of yours. And, uh, it, you know, some of them might actually do their best to amplify those fears a little bit. But I'd like to think that most of our listeners and most of our members over in our Discord chat group will help you. They'll they'll calm you down and provide a great movie conversation while you're there. I know a lot of those guys over on Discord, and I don't think they're going to do that at all. You don't think so, huh? I don't think they're going to calm me down at all. You think they're going to make it worse? I think they're all going to make it worse, but we're going to have fun doing it. They're going to, indeed. It's all about the joy. It's all about fun and fantastic conversations about the thing we all love, movies. And to get there, they should just head on over to thenextreel.com slash Discord. All right, Andy, Piranha. This one is supposed to be the brass ring. The brass ring of the aquatic killers because Steven Spielberg said it was. Specifically, I think he said it was the brass ring of Jaws ripoffs. I don't think it's quite <laughs> quite the brass I, ring of aquatic killer he, movies. I think he said it's better than mine. <laughs> if I could have made mine this way, I would have. More rafting, especially homemade handcrafted like twine and no nails rafting. Um, yes, I'm I'm sure that that is accurate. I, I'm sure it is, too. I'm yeah. sure it is. Yep. What uh, you when was the last time you saw this movie? Do you remember? Oh, it was probably college. I rented it uh, quite a while back, but it's one that I remembered fondly because uh, it's just a fun Roger Corman uh, ripoff film of Jaws. It's Joe Dante directing it, John Sales writing it. It's by people who I think had a better handle on how to kind of craft a film like this than uh, Ovidio Asinaitis in our last conversation. It's, I, I don't know, I just, I had fun then and I had almost even more fun this time watching it. You know, I have to tell you, I did too. I was really surprised. And watching this movie, I, I know I've seen it before, but watching it, I have so few memories of just scenes, sequences in the movie, it is far less exploitative than I remember. Like, I think my memory has been supplanted by watching, you know, 3D and 3DD, um, <laughs> because I've seen those. And so uh, this movie, I actually think, carries a lot more weight for the aquatic killer part. I, I really, I had, a, I had a fine old time. It, and that's what makes me start with the big question. Just how heavily does this count as a ripoff? That's a good question because I, I, the, it hits a point where it's no longer just a straight up ripoff and they're actually just kind of playing on the tropes from the film that they're, quote, ripping off and they're just allowing it to become its own film. And I feel like while it does have elements that you're pulling from Jaws and it certainly fits the tropes of this type of film, I also feel like, you know, they're kind of creating their own thing here. They've got uh, these piranha that have been genetically mutated by the government. So you've got that whole government plot. I mean, you still have the person who has who's pushing for all the crowds wants to have the big event and uh you know to kind of create that big success which of course leads to a bloody massacre but it also feels different and i think that's what works about this film is they just found a way to pull on all of those uh those elements from jaws and from other types of similar horror films and make it their own so i i feel like it ends up it is a ripoff but at the same time it's it just feels like it's 
it's almost like an homage, you could almost say. I, I prefer homage. Uh, it feels to, a little rip off. <laughs> more artistic, this, I suppose. I, I guess it does. And maybe that's too much for this film in particular. But I think it is, for me, this movie stands out uh, as something having its own identity. Last week with The Octopus, it did not, right? That felt to me like I was watching every like set piece was a stand-in for something else. And here, we, you know, Piranha, we have a healthy trope corner in this, in this oh, discussion yes. coming up. It is meaty, so to speak. But uh, I don't feel like it was just a cut-and-paste kind of a, a thing. I feel like they they actually have some some script and performance work that actually sets this film to, to a little bit of a higher uh, standard than what you'd expect from the ripoff well and to that end it also it doesn't feel as boring like i feel like God, they they no. paid attention to the script and because of that even if it does have some elements that feel very much just like ripoffs and kind of some elements that feel kind of uh, you know patched together because mm-hmm. it's so much more entertaining you you find your way past that so much more easily than you do in tentacles where you just really have nothing else to do other than think about the the fact that it's just a ripoff of something else or or pulled from something can we start with a discussion here on at least in in terms of our aquatic killers we'll say pre-draft and i think we should create a draft for all of the aquatic killers that we talk about by the time we get to the end of this show last week was an octopus giant octopus uh this week piranha uh how do you weight the inherent fear factor of the carnivorous amazonian fish to the giant uh octopus which which scares you more well as a kid i probably would have said octopus because i felt like seeing things like Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea and, uh, you know, stills or images from, you know, it came from beneath the sea, things like that with these giant octopuses. There's just an idea of those tentacles wrapping around you that just feel incredibly frightening. When you start looking at the reality of octopuses and you realize generally, one, how most of them aren't that big, and two, how they're just just very intelligent kind of, you know, good creatures, um, I, I've grown to be a lot less afraid of them. Piranha still kind of the idea of them creeped me out enough where I wouldn't want to go into uh, most of the rivers in South America because I just feel like, you know, they're going to bite me. You just always hear stories about how, you know, you walk a cow into the water and it's gone in like 10 minutes or so, or whatever the yeah. horror stories are with these these fish. The trailer of this movie says it could eat a man to the bone in one minute. Yeah. So right. if we're to learn anything from trailers, it may make it that. And that's funny because I was doing some research on piranhas themselves and uh, just to figure out, are they really as dangerous as I've always <laughs> believed? And as this movie certainly makes mm-hmm. it out to be. And we should say, you know, we, with this series, the Aquatic Killers series, we went into this uh, trying to find you know, different creatures for each particular movie and ones that weren't genetically modified or anything like that. We failed in this part because they these were genetically modified. They're not real piranha. They're kind of like right. these genetically modified, very large ones that are attacking people. But real piranha, there are more than 20 species, and it's only the red-bellied piranha that is the one that most people say is the man-eater. But even then, it still is people who eat more of them than them who eat people. They're not 
really going to attack people. In fact, they're largely only feeding on other fish or wounded animals that happen to be in the water. And to that end, they're they're relatively harmless. I mean, they have been known to to uh, attack and eat people, but largely it's when it's the dry season. There's not a lot of food, and somebody is just stumbles in, and for whatever reason, is unable to get out quick enough. Because if you get out quick enough, you're probably only going to have a few bites on you. Yeah, but I don't know. Do you see that one scene where he did jump up and and out of the water and eat <laughs> that face off of the camp counselor? You telling me that's not real? He had a gun and he was unprotected. Well, he also was not a likable character, and that's what happens. <laughs> uh, I think for me, it is absolutely still the Piranha, even after all of your uh, love notes to Piranha. Um, I think that it is it's such a fantastic stand in for, you know, the the sort of swarm germ warfare in, in ill conceived uh, uh, government bio attacks or bio research. Uh, gone awry. It just works so well in that regard. And I think the whole idea of these little fish, a million little fish, just buzzing away at a cow or a me is so much more terrifying than an octopus. It's just sort of fleshy, gloopy mess to me. I think it just makes for a terrific horror vector, right? This The piranha, so much better than the octopus. So much scarier. And it's like, um, which is the, it was the last of the Star Trek films, Star Trek Beyond, when it was a fantastic villain because they have so many, like hundreds of little tiny ships that they use to attack the big ships. And Mm -hmm. because of that, it's very hard to defeat them. You can't just shoot your phaser because you're hitting a couple, but there's so many more around it that can just come in and attack. And that's, I think, why Piranha seemed like a, a very vicious killer. And to that end, that's why it really is kind of as effective as Jaws because Jaws is one giant massive eating machine that can swallow you whole. But in Piranha, it's it's just thousands of these little things that are just coming in and just pecking at you and every peck, the ripping off flesh. And uh, I just, I find that incredibly, incredibly effective. I think so too. And this movie would have turned out potentially much differently if they'd had access to the Beastie Boys catalog. <laughs> uh, to dream, Pete. All right. Where would you like to start talking about the movie itself? I have this list of notes. It's a mile long here. Yes. Oh, I, I suppose we should just kind of start at the beginning and just kind of talk through a little bit and then maybe save all the tropes so we can kind of build yeah. to a trope list once we get to that before we kind of get into the okay. cr- our crew notes and stuff. Right out of the gate, I have to say I love the way that they did the titles, um, having the word piranha come up in white and then drop into the water. And as it drops into the water, it like sinks, it like animates yeah. and sinks into the water and it turns blood red and all the the whole screen goes red for the rest of the credits. I, that was a really fun way to kind of kick things off. I think so, too. They did a similar thing at the end, but we don't have the little animated pool of blood that kind of takes over the the water. And so I I find myself missing that. They didn't. (laughs) I wanted more goo. Uh, (laughs) So I thought that was really fun. Uh, In terms of treatment of the animals themselves, like we have, uh, you know, we talked last week about how they bought a dead octopus and they splashed it around a bunch and (laughs) couldn't really use the tentacles. In this movie, we have a couple of different um, ways that they treat the animals, the animals themselves, right? The fish themselves. One is we have this cutaway that we get to. It looks like kind of a, a rig. I don't know how they how they did it, but it honestly looks like just some you know cardboard or, or plastic fish 
just cutouts of the fish on on some sort of a mesh being dragged through the water. So it kind of wiggles and they maybe speed it up a little bit and put the sound effect and it looks like there are fish swimming together through the uh, water. And we go to that uh, several times. Whenever there's an imminent attack, you see this kind of, the you see the fish swimming together. And, and it is the fake, it, it's the most fake, uh, I think, that we get of the treatment of the fish. So those are kind of the, that's sort of the far away. The, the close-ups, when they're actually attacking, I'm assuming they're just more puppet, you know, puppet stuff. Yeah, I, I didn't find anything and I, I didn't have time to listen to the commentary to see what it was that they were doing. But I do find it actually quite effective because if it is, they're, they're moving them in and out very fast to make it mm-hmm. look like they're just nibbling and taking a lot of quick bites. And so it worked very effectively as you're watching, you know, with whatever parts of people's fleshy bodies are underwater as these little things are jumping or moving in and out, kind of ripping their skin off. I thought that was uh, actually, it worked really well and it's edited tightly. So you're not seeing it for periods of time that are just too long. It's just yeah. enough to kind of see what they're doing and, and get a sense and picture it in your head and then like, oh, yuck, no. Well, and and they do a good job of actually showing flesh debris in the water. Like yeah. that's a that's it's not just color. Like when they go in, they go in for a nibble and they come back and they're they leave debris like skin and flesh and it uh, it's awful in the water after it. So uh, I think that works really well. It, it, the interesting thing we didn't talk about last week was the sound effect for the animal. Like in this movie, it's kind of a metallic twangy kind of a, a sound when they go in for their whenever you see the fish going in for their meals. It's interesting. I think it's effective. It's sort of a jarring sound. It really it it's, makes you uncomfortable when you watch it. The other, the, last week, the octopus was also scratching metal. Like it, whenever this fleshy, gooey thing comes up out of the water, it's a weird scratching sort of metallic sound. And I think that's interesting. It's now made me kind of take note. How often do we get some sort of a weird metallic sound for the attack of the horror monster. Well, I think what works really well with the sound here is it it's so many that like like it's it's just very quick, very repetitive, a lot of little sounds. Yeah. And it ends up feeling it almost I think to me it reminds me of a lot of insects buzzing around. I mean, that's that's kind of what the feel of that sound is. It just yeah, feels like swarmy. a lot of little things and because of that it works well in context of these these little fish uh, which makes it to that end feel different than something like jaws. So That'll be something interesting to kind of check because, I mean, Jaws doesn't have anything. You know, there's obviously John Williams' famous mm-hmm. score that is uh, is paired with that shark. But again, it's that's just music. It's There's nothing specifically like strange noises or anything that are also included. It does make me think that as we continue this series, we should start paying attention to uh, to sound effects and see if any of these other filmmakers decide to bring interesting sounds in that yeah. kind of help represent the creatures. So we have the setup. We have the, the teens who go discover a government, abandoned government lab in Texas. What are they doing here, Andy? You know, anytime you see like a government facility and then you decide, let's go in and poke around and then you see a giant pool, you know, don't get in. I mean, swim in it. It could be, you know, toxic water. I mean, you know, why would you just jump in and decide to swim, even if it wasn't full of of mutant fish? Uh, You know, it's just it just seemed like a dumb idea. Um, But, uh, you know, it it made for a fun setup. 
you get, once they're in and they're swimming around, you get a very brief shot of an eye kind of opening up, which sets up the the fish pretty well. And then you don't really see much more of them other than some POVs as they're coming up to the people. And then you start kind of getting that uh, kind of just the, the sound and everything as they're eating. It works really well the way that they kind of develop that with these fish. Yeah, yeah, and, and and it's sort of a pre-trope too, because that that PO, the fish, the attack fish POV coming up from under the water. I mean, that is a that is a Jaws POV. Yeah, very much, you know, yeah. that's very much one of those uh, uh, one of those looks, and and has become kind of a standard for aquatic killer movies. Not just aquatic killers. I mean, really, like animal killers. Like you look yeah. at the one about the bear, the grizzly bear, and stuff, and it's it's you're following. You see the POV walking through the forest and stuff. And honestly, it's just a horror trope. We've seen, we've talked about that in like Black Christmas. And I mean, it's just something that people use as a way to show a threat viewing a victim, a potential victim. Right. Now we go into the lab once the whole investigation starts. And Andy, this is a thread that bugs me to no end. Really? There is, yes. Yes, I'm surprised to hear your shock. I that there is a monster, a wee tiny monster <laughs> in this lab that is sneaking around and they make such a big like deal out of it. There are so many little hero cutaways to this little monster. It's like a little stop motion around. creature kind of yes. watching them, right? What is the purpose of that creature in this movie? And why don't I get more of it? Like, if it's there, I want to know why it's there. There's no explanation for this creature. There's no explanation. But what I love about what they did with that is that it's such a strange piece of world building. We talk about world building a lot on this show and why we love the way that people build these worlds and the things they use. And that is a strange element that makes no sense. But it tells me, one, this lab is open. And two, they're doing some really wacky stuff that is off the charts if they're creating strange creatures like this. It's it just like there's nothing sensible about what that would be and why it's there. And the fact that it drops out does disappoint me a little bit. And I haven't seen Piranha 2 The Spawning. I don't, uh, I've never heard like one way or another if they continue with that. I know the fish change quite a bit by the time we get to the second one. Um, but I don't know if that stop motion creature pops back up. But I don't know. I guess the whole idea of it is just for me, it just is an element of world building that tells me this was a serious lab and they were doing some seriously crazy experiments here. You know, I don't know. I just for me, that ended up kind of filling in some really interesting backstory. I feel like it was just uh, it, it was too much of a of a, a little bit lightweight in terms of world. But I get enough of the world building just out of the production design right it just looks the the lab looks like a rundown government lab it's fine um and and so i feel like it is just one other creature and i feel like if they're gonna have one other creature i need to see more maybe and i guess we do have a lot of bell jars with like you know all of those things and maybe it would have been fun to have especially that last one kind of move there was kind of a large thing with a weird mouth and a weird place and that would have been fun well, there's there's a piranha. We get to see one yeah. of the piranhas in one piranha. of them too. So that's a place we kind of get a sense of what this specific thing is that's in the water. So that's nice. Right. And I feel yeah. like that was actually a setup for James Cameron in Aliens when we see the face hugger yes. in the tube. I feel like the whole idea of having kind of a these creatures in jars to be studying was an yeah. interesting element. Which I'm, of course, it's something that's been around. I mean, we've seen stuff like that back in the in the. Uh, early horror classics and stuff. So it's something that's yeah. been around. I just, I, I personally liked how it was used here. 
Even with a weird stop motion creature. Yeah, right. We have our intrepid investigators who end up going back up to the lab and they discover there is still a researcher there living in this lab as a caretaker of the fish. And we find out that the fish were bred to destroy Vietnam. Andy, <laughs> so, so smart. Tell me you didn't Operation hear that. Operation like, Razor Tooth, yes. Of course that exists. Of course there are government scientists doing this. That's yeah. what NORAD is for, actually. That's what they're right? actually doing is Operation Razorfish, Razor Tooth. Razor Teeth, yeah. No, it's such a strange thing to to do. I don't know. When they mentioned that, I'm like, well, that's a, an odd thing to do, knowing how dangerous they are, knowing that if it gets to the ocean, they will <laughs> spread everywhere yeah. and basically destroy all the fish Everything. in the ocean and anyone who goes into it. Because they breed, I don't know, these these fish breed like flies. I don't know if you know that. That's what I heard. That means they, they also only live about two days. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they get out of there and they end up d- traveling downriver uh, together. And they do well, it. They, and they lose their Jeep um, yep, they lose in their an Jeep. accident. And so the Crazy only doctor. way down is rafting. So how do you feel about the raft? <laughs> knowing that knowing that they know, our heroes know, that the river is full of deadly fish. And they choose yeah. the raft. Okay, so it's I find it to be, uh, I mean, obviously they need a way down. And it uh-huh. seems like the only logical way down if you don't have a way. But also it seems like, okay, but the river's full of piranha. Now, they've never seen one. So to that mm-hmm. end, they might not realize how dangerous they are. I mean, they, you know, they, they release them without realizing it. And the doctor, he uh, seems very upset that they've released yeah. them. And to the and point, at this where point, he's not talking very much, too. Right? He's not talking. He's been in, well, he crashed the Jeep and now he's kind yeah. of injured and shocked. And uh, it doesn't really say much to them. And and so they don't really learn much about the piranha threat until really they're on the raft and they're kind of already floating down the river. And he starts explaining a little bit more. The doctor gives him a little background about the Vietnam and all that sort of stuff. Well, they did. I mean, it's great. It's like they've stacked the threats, I think, really well in this sequence because we get to say here that's so dumb, of course. But. It is just one, you know, it's like an onion of risk that, you know, there. He's on one hand, he's so proud of this log uh, huck fin raft that is lashed together. <laughs> Which he built with his daughter. I, I like that. And he built with his daughter. No nails. It's all twine wrapped with all, all these that, logs. Yeah. And it's great. They're very happy with it. Uh, but of course, we know already that that's not going to end well. And in fact, it doesn't actually end well once they get on the raft and get down the river a ways. They do see their mountain man avatar, Jack, uh, who is is great. Like, what a great death we get to see uh, of him dragging That's, <laughs> his skeletal legs up the bank. That was fantastic. I watched uh, this with my son, and that was a great moment for him. That was, like, really one of the first horror moments where we've seen, like, somebody, like, really... Yeah. You know, bloody and missing limbs and stuff. It was a pretty shocking sight. And just seeing that poor guy who had his legs devoured by the fish and then tried to pull himself back up to his house only to bleed out. Oof. So good. Good stuff. And the poor dog. Is that a is that a trope we forgot to list? The the sad dog trope? Uh, probably was. Oh okay. probably was. well, yeah. this is a footnote. Sad dog is also a trope. There it is, right. yes. All right. 
What else? Well, and then they go a little farther down the river and, and you find a kid who was with his dad and they had been fishing. And then the dad, of course, uh, accidentally gets uh, is trying to get something out of the water and gets eaten. And the boat flips and the kid is on the top of the canoe as it's uh, slowly sinking and they come upon him and have to rescue the kid. And of course, that's the moment that uh, ends up kind of creating some injuries. And now we have uh, our fair doctor with his bloody hand hanging in the water. He's kind of unconscious only to because he he realizes the threat that he has created. And so he is brave enough to jump in to save this kid and get him over in the process, uh, getting bit quite a bit. And uh, of course, as they're sailing back down the river, it's his bloody hand that draws the piranha to him and then to the boat. And he's the one who um, leads the piranha to basically destroy this twine tied raft. And so all of that, like you say all of that. And of course, you know, we're looking at this as a 1970s aquatic killer movie, but actually it holds up on screen. It legitimately holds up as a for me as an entertaining bit of thrill and animal murder goo. It works. It does. And, you know, I'd say the script works well. I think that the threat is built strongly. And I'd say, you know, we haven't really talked about the cast much, but Bradford Dillman, who we've talked about on the show a couple times, I believe, and Heather Menzies Urich and uh, Kevin McCarthy as the doctor that we had. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I mean, he's fantastic here as the doctor. I just think that with these three kind of on the boat at this point, and then Keenan Wynn, who is the mountain man, it's just, it's it's a really well-used cast that we didn't see in Tentacles. I mean, they had a great cast. They were just so poorly used. Yeah, terribly used. At least now we have people who are being used in a way that really is strong. And so I have, I, I feel like that is one of the reasons that I bought into these characters. Maggie and Paul are actively trying to figure out what's going on with this. They're our protagonists. We stick with them through the duration of the film. We don't lose them and then follow somebody else later. They're actively the ones we follow throughout. And there's kind of a, a kind of a little bit of a caustic relationship between the two of them, and it, we see it develop over the course of the film as you know, friendship, and it works really well. That's, I think, the strength here. Plus, just the tension around the raft builds really well. And we already know these fish, I mean, they're they're pretty passive because it's just a raft floating. But once they taste that blood, they are ready to start tearing it apart. And I just think it works. It works really well in that context. Well, totally. And, and you know, now we get to the point where we're starting to cut more frequently back and forth between other sites, right? We have both the yeah. camp and we have the Lost Lake Resort. Uh, and both have just sort of in, are increasing the stakes the further we get down the river. And the military base. We didn't talk yeah, about the, the military fact base that shows up. now they come out and they are now uh, kind of held up by the military who stop them because uh, there turns out to be a, more of a deal other than this military base where they're developing these fish. But the actual general of the military has uh, he's one of the key investors in this uh, in this resort downstream. And so he wants to keep the resort uh, uh, opening day plans moving forward with uh, without paying any attention to the fact that there might be some piranha in the water. <laughs> We're talking about uh, Bruce Gordon uh, as Colonel Waxman and Dick Miller as Buck Gardner and and fantastic. And as as part of kind of the uh, the military antagonist, we have this researcher, Dr. Mengers, uh, played by Barbara Steele, who is 
diabolical. Just look at her. She's diabolical. She plays this <laughs> textbook diabolical. Oh, she's great. She does a great yeah. job of playing di- diabolical. Um, I, I feel like we've talked about her. You know, she's been around uh, a long time. She's still working. She's yeah. in Castlevania right now, the TV series. I've never seen it. No, we did talk about <gasps> she her. Was she in was Shivers. in Shivers. That's yes. right. How did we forget that? I don't remember, but uh, yeah. So clearly, somebody that we've talked about um, on the on and the we show have before. Great memory of it, <laughs> clearly, uh, clearly. But um, yeah, I mean, a lot of these people, like we talked about, uh, uh, Bradford Dillman. He was in Escape from the Planet of the Apes and Compulsion. He was Compulsion. one of our one of our young yeah. men. One of the, the young men. Yeah, man. So there's a couple strong films that uh, that he starred in, and also he was in The Swarm. Another. <laughs> <laughs> Another of the these big uh, creature disaster films that came out the same year. Talk about typecast. We get, uh, oh, we can't forget uh, Paul Bartel, who's the camp counselor. Oh, we wow. Already, we yeah. already talked about I got his, his face eaten off, but he is the the camp counselor that we that we love to hate, right? Why, why does he carry a gun? With the the campers, he's apparently at least reading subtext. He's apparently some some military background with our our hero, right? With Paul, yeah. And so that's how they end up kind of in the weirdly in the same area with the same sort of background. This leads us to the massacre on the river, right? On the uh, with all the kids, and mm, the I camp, think yeah. we should talk about it in parallel with the non massacre of the boats in tentacles we came away last week just to catch everybody up we came away with a strong opinion that some kids had to die and that not enough kids died last week it was non-threatening toy time with the octopus as he knocks and played whack-a-mole with the boats but didn't take any kids should have taken some kids how well do you think this movie recovers from the treatment of children in danger this week i think it works really well i mean we don't get very many kids dying uh, i think it's only the camp counselor one of the counselors who dies um plus the, the head counselor the head counselor um but largely it's uh it's a lot of injuries a lot of bloody kids getting pulled out of the water and so i think to that end it actually raised the threat of the fish and it also gives you a sense that you know they're you know they're not going to take everybody down but they certainly are going to hurt people and yeah. I think to that end, it worked really well. It, it built the threat up enough. And I mean, I will say it gives our our daughter here um, the chance to actually be a character or perhaps the character who ends up having a character arc in the course of the film. She actually is afraid of water. And because of this threat and all everybody getting hurt, she is brave enough to pull the boat out and go into the water and start saving people. I was like, that's that was a nice little bit of screenwriting there, John Sales. Right. And she does it in a way that where she takes, you know, she could have ta- figured out a way to get the the nice metal boat, the aluminum boat, into the water. But no, she takes the wee rubber the inflatable little, boat, yeah. right? Yeah. Talk right. about risk. Risky business, She's indeed. She's the, the greatest heroine in the film. Truly. Uh, saves one of the camp counselors that she likes a lot, watches Betsy die. <laughs> And, and I think for me, that's the that's the part that excuses this film uh, from letting more kids off the hook in the water. That that moment where she lets go of Betsy's fingertips and Betsy is taken under underwater by the fish is horrifying. 
through the eyes of a child. And that's what makes the massacre at the camp uh, a, a valuable asset to this movie. Well, it's because we now know these characters, right? Yeah. And that's what Tentacles never did. This film gives us a chance to get to know the characters, even if it's just little bits and pieces. But we have a sense of who little Susie is and why she's afraid of the water. And these counselors talk to her. And her relationship with Betsy, trying to help her not exactly. have to learn to swim. Plus, we have them, th- uh, you know, Betsy and her bonding over throwing darts at the uh, the head of the, yeah. the camp, uh, his picture. <laughs> his head. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, there's a lot of moments like that that I think really help you get to know these characters and like these characters. And I think that's a strength that Joe Dante and John Sayles clearly had as they put this script together and directed it, is allowing the characters to develop and grow, allowing there to be a sense of kind of comedy that kind of played through, which is certainly a strength that Joe Dante has has shown over the course of his career that kind of comedy horror blend works mm-hmm. so well for him. We've talked about that back when we did like Gremlins, you know, things Gremlins, like that. Right. It's very much his style. And I think that it just allowed for a very strong story to develop as we get to know these people and then feel for them as people like Betsy get pulled under uh, by the fish and die. It, it gave us a sense of gravitas and it lent that to the film very nicely. The final fight, we get through there, they rescue camp becomes a triage location uh, and uh, emergency medical uh, care is being delivered to the children and then we move further down because it turns out our characters learn to read a map and discover that in fact there is another way to get down to the the uh, resort and that is through a little byway and the piranha are figuring that out they've learned how to navigate the waterways and so we have to figure out our final our final fight strategy, and that is to pollute them to death, Andy. <laughs> this movie is pro-Toxic Avenger. Did you expect that? I totally forgot that about this film and the fact that their solution is we have to we have to dump some toxic waste into the water to get rid of these things. I just found myself laughing out loud that that was their solution. It was genius. I thought it was just a hilarious way to kind of defeat the fish. And I'm like, okay, but I've also seen The Simpsons and other things where now that there's toxic water, you know, those fish end up just two-eyed fish. Yeah, right. <laughs> what are we really doing here? Or fewer eyes. Yeah. No, it's, it is it uh, is ill-conceived. It, they're lucky the movie ends when it does. Yes, right. Because we don't, I think, you know, and number two, I think, takes us to the Bahamas now uh and so we don't uh we don't get to see i i don't think what actually happens in the river but it's it's the river's dead and the piranha have now taken over and have legs uh yeah i heard that they flew so i'm I'm really curious flying fish (laughs) that was the that was the original plot for jaws 3d Uh, and then that was taken by uh, Sharknado, uh, one of those with the yep. sharks flying through the sky. There you go. Sharks yeah. flying. So that is our final strategy is to pollute them to death. And we we get our hero dives into the control booth. Man. Which for some reason has been flooded. We flooded, didn't mention but that. Flooded like so deep. Like, did yeah. you, like they, who would have built that control center without thinking that the river was going to rise like 20 feet? Since they built that thing. Yeah. Well, there was a dam. Maybe it was because they built the dam and that whole section was flooded, I guess. Although it seems downstream from, from the dam. So yeah. now that I say that, it makes no sense. There should be sense. less water here. 
Yeah. So he has to swim underwater to get to the first floor where he goes in and he has to open the giant valve to let the toxic waste out, which is not locked or protected in any way, shape or form. And he does that and he's he's nibbled at and clearly put into a state of shock. But he is rescued and is dragged out of the water. And he only has 100 seconds to do so. Did you say that? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, I didn't time it. Did you time it? I didn't. I didn't. I felt like it was a lot more. I did, too. But he did okay. He did okay. He survived. Uh, he, I can't, he swam with his shoes on. That always weirds me out. Who does that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't like it, swimming with your shoes on. Uh, and that leads us to the last shot, right? We have this this um, moment with Dr. Manjis as she's being interviewed by the local television. Uh, are you sure that we're okay? And she looks straight into my soul, breaking that fourth wall, looks right into my eyes and says, there's nothing left to fear. Mm. And then we cut to the ocean. Uh, so the, the fish are in the ocean. We're all dead. That's the end. It is the end. Welcome to Trope Corner. Oh, yes. Before we get to Trope Corner, before we get to Trope Corner, I just have to add one more more note here. I watched this with my son, as I told you. He's 10. He's in this phase right now here where he's wanting to start watching horror movies. Like, you know, he's seen some YouTube videos with kids talking about The Nun and other recent horror movies. And and so for some reason, it has spurred on his brain to say, I want to watch some of these movies. And so I've shown him a few and I'm still trying to relatively be gentle and I still have to kind of talk through it with him as we're watching. So we were watching this one and, and he came in a little late. I had already started it and then he came in probably, I don't know, 15 minutes. It's it's already, you know, we have our two um, people trying to figure out what happened to the missing teenagers, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're watching it along and we get to the point where our two intrepid um, investigators are, are, are being held by the military and they're trying to figure out a plan to get out. And he says, well, go out there and distract him somehow. <laughs> and and so, so Maggie goes out and she's trying to distract our guard, which the army sentry, we should say, is John Sayles in a cameo. Yeah, right. And she's, <laughs> she's trying to distract him. And then she goes, look, look up in the sky. What's that? It's Superman. And she lifts her shirt and flashes her chest at, at him just so so Paul can like take his sleeping bag and wrap it around his head and pull him in and knock him out so they can escape. My son who has not watched a lot of of this sort of film before <laughs> he was in complete and utter shock at what happened <laughs> he clamped his hands to his face and he just sat there going it's burned into my eyes it's burned into my eyes <laughs> I had to stop the movie because I was laughing so hard (laughs) at his his very strong reaction to that moment, which which lasted for quite some time. Quite some time. As as, uh, also father to a son who's slightly older than yours, all I can tell you is that moment for you should forever henceforth be referred to as the awakening. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Yeah, well done, Dad. That's awesome. That was a good reminder to me that, you know, uh, if I start going down this horror rabbit hole with him, um, I do have to be careful with some of the 70s and 80s films because it certainly is a period where that became a trope in and of itself Yes, in horror movies as as kind of a need to, to throw that in. So, yeah. So I guess that's our lead in to Trope Corner. All right. So uh, needless uh, nudity. 
trope corner number one. Uh, number two, we have clu- obviously that we've already talked a little bit about the clueless kids looking to skinny dip. Mm, that that seems they, to be yeah. something that happens often. Yeah. Uh, a- accident in the lab. That's a trope going back to you know comics in the eighteen hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, science is a pesky thing. Science is a pesky thing. We do have the nosy investigator. In this case, she's a skip tracer. She's looking for uh, somebody who's run out on, I guess, uh, some sort of a summons or a crime of some sort. In this particular case, it seems like, yeah, she's just a detective. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, but like she's more like a bounty hunter, you know? Like she's just like looking for clues on a kid who's run out of something. But um, usually it's like a journalist, right? Or a nosy photographer or a nosy... Yeah. You know, somebody and and in this case, Skip Tracer, but she is the nosy investigator. We have the person who's a bloodhound, but loses something. You'd mm. think that they'd be a little bit more on top Big of their comedy stuff. trope there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the reclusive divorcee. Oh, right? yes. That's, uh-huh. that's a good one. Yeah. Man. Uh, and, and I think we sort of have two of them, right? Because we have Paul, who has who's the divorcee. We don't know really enough about Jack. But what's he doing alone up there? You know, I would say Jack fits into the kind of the the weird, like the the wacky mountain man trope. Wacky I feel like that's mountain more man. Is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we should document that. We need wacky that mountain man. Uh, we do have or, the terror at the sure. camp, right? Yes, terror yep. at the camp. That's a big one. Yeah, certainly spurred camp. a whole slew of Friday the 13th movies. I do have the jail escape, right, where our heroes are put in jail. Because nobody, the state doesn't believe them. Mm-hmm. And we have a bonus, ladies are clever trope, where she figures out a way to break the plumbing, knock the guard over the head, and get them both out of the jail cells. Yeah. And he has the look of, oh my gosh, you're really, <laughs> you're really clever and you're a lady. Yeah. Like it just, that I, I feel like that's one that, that has to be noted. Truly. Truly, yeah. Um, let's see, what else do we have? Uh, the out-of-control uh, stolen police car race to the rescue? Yes, that's mm-hmm. very common. And they, they do a good job on this. There are a lot of, you know, crazy uh, jumps, like Dukes of Hazard-style jumps in the police car. Many puddles of mud. Yeah, clearly Texas is full of that. Oh, Texas is really known for its landscape <laughs> that is just perfect for this sort of of behavior uh and then finally of course my favorite the danger what danger uh where the uh state uh, uh official says there's nothing left to fear true true a lot of lot of good tropes good, there great uh, tropes yeah a lot of fun ones in there that we've seen before and will see again it just makes me think in celebration of this movie that even though there are so many tropes at work in this movie i mean so many andy Putting all of these pieces together in the right way with a good script actually doesn't make you uh, look at the, give it the side eye. It actually works. That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah, and to that end, I guess I'd say that, you know, Roger Corman, he knew what he was doing. He d- wasn't falling down the same rabbit hole that uh, Asinitis was. He yeah. actually knew to hire a lot of these young filmmakers who, you know, were looking to do more ambitious things. But while they were trying to get there, he could use them and they could use him to kind of amp kind of the level of quality of some of the entertainment that he was cranking out. And I Mm -hmm. I think to that end, this works really well. And what a great follow up, although a few years later, but to uh, to Cries and Whispers, eh? Yeah, totally. (laughs) Good old Corman. (laughs) Right, right. He really 
knew how to stack the, uh, stack the deck. <laughs> uh, you want to talk about getting it made? You know, I don't have much about getting it made, but uh, the interesting thing is that when it did get released, Universal Studios, uh, which was actually releasing Jaws 2 the very same summer this came out, they actually were uh, filing an injunction to stop this film from getting released. But Steven Spielberg, he actually gave the film a positive comment and said, you know, we shouldn't do this. And so they stopped and they kind of allowed it to exist, which I think is fantastic. And obviously, Spielberg and Dante would go on to work together as Dante came on to work on a number of Amblin films. And so uh, I think that uh, there's strength to sometimes having those uh, those friendships in place. Good will. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about most of the cast, and you mentioned John Sayles as the Army Sentry. Um, the only, I think we didn't mention that uh, you may not have noticed two scuba divers. Uh, Joe Dante himself was scuba diver number two, and Phil Tippett was scuba diver number three slash victim. Hmm. Uh, in the movie. So we have a little bit of uh, fun casting there. Oh, yeah, because I think out. Phil Tippett was probably working on the creatures, right? Yeah, the the monsters. The little fishies. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to say, we talked through the cast, but Dick Miller, he's very much a Joe Dante regular. I think he's yeah. in, if not all of his films, most of them for sure. I mean, he's one of those guys that's kind of, every time I see Joe Dante's name at the credits, I'm like, okay, when is Dick Miller going to pop up? Because he's yeah, right. he's like a Lucky Charm sort of actor. Uh, we've got Jamie Anderson behind the camera on this movie, and I, I think it's great. I think it's great. And he's he, you know, went on to do some really uh, fun movies. I mean, uh, you know, Bad Santa, Girl Next Door. He's done a lot of TV. Pushing Daisies is one of my very favorite uh, television shows from 2007 that didn't make it very far. He did a couple of episodes of that. He's he's done a lot of, of great work. Gross Point Blank. Come on. Uh, the gift, an interesting variety of films. Yeah, uh, you know, like what's love got to do with it? To the Odd Couple, to to the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. So he's kind of all yeah. over the place. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I think. It, oh, Small Soldiers isn't that one of your? Favorite that's another. Well, it's Joe Dante, and and yeah. so that's I think the first time and only time that he actually returned to work with Joe Dante. Interesting. Like it. Yeah. Although he has come back and worked as a camera operator on a number of other. Uh, Dante films like The Burbs and his episode, his piece of Twilight Zone, the movie, sure. things like that. Sure, interesting. It's a great talent, and it's so fun to to you know he's he's got this on his credits. I think it's great that we have. Okay, you actually owned this soundtrack before we watched the movie again. Yes, I I love this soundtrack. Uh, Pino Donaggio is uh, one of those. Italian composers that I think writes really interesting scores. Uh, he did a number of great uh, scores that he did with Brian De Palma that I, I just really, really enjoy. I think we talked about him with Blowout because he did that one. We talked mm-hmm. about him with Carrie because he did that one. And here he is doing Piranha. And I just, I love what he's doing in in the in the movie. And especially like when the Piranha attack, that first theme, it just is such a strong horror theme. I, I don't know. I just find it incredibly effective. So Pino D'Angio, uh, I really... Um, I just enjoy. I, I think that he's a great, a great composer. All right. So we know that this is part of a family of uh, one could term a family of incestuous sequels and remakes. Uh, what what happened next? Yeah, it actually um, I mean, because of this film. Eventually, it did kind of grow into a uh, kind of a cult following that did spawn 
a, a number of interesting films that I, I I think that it's actually just called the Piranha Film uh, Series, even though they're not directly tied together. But this one led to the sequel, Piranha 2 The Spawning, which we talked a little bit last week because Ovidio Asinaitis, uh worked on that. He produced it. James Cameron was directing it, and then they fired Cameron, and Asinaitis came in to finish it. And then there was a remake of this film, which I don't even remember happening. It was a direct-to-showtime in 1995 that was largely the same story. It was another Corman uh, film that he basically took the exact same script, just took out all the comedy and just made it a straight horror directed by Scott P. Levy. And uh, it got just it got terrible reviews. Joe Dante and his producer um, on this film, uh, John Davidson, both hated it. And um, but it's a Corman film. So that means it had to be a success because he's never made a failure, according to Corman. And then, of course, as you mentioned, Piranha 3D uh, was directed by Alexandre Aja in 2010. <laughs> I, you know, why do I try? That sounds uh, it, great. Was, it was a 3D film, and it was named Piranha 3D, of course, with its own sequel in 2012, Piranha 3 Double D. So that it, it really tells you the direction the franchise ended up going by yeah, the time you get right, to the end. Right. Uh, but what we do have here that we didn't have last week is we have some awards. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yes, uh, the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror, you know, our favorites, uh, the Saturn Awards. This did win for Best Film Editing, which was great to see. And I, you know, I think it was pretty tight. I don't, I don't think we actually mentioned it was edited by Joe Dante and Mark Goldblatt, too. I right. Think we yes. skipped that credit. So. We did, yeah. And then it was nominated for Best Horror Film, but it lost to The Wicker Man. Interestingly, that film also beat out Halloween. So, uh, interesting. interesting year of horror films. All right. So, how to do it at the box office? Well, Dante's second film with Corman was cheap, but there is some conflict about how much it cost. One report said it cost $600,000 to make, another said $720,000. I'm just going to assume the latter, which lands it at about $2.8 million in today's dollars. The movie was released August 3rd, 1978, the same week as The Eyes of Laura Mars, Interiors, The Magic of Lassie, China Nine, Liberty 37, and Corvette Summer. Corman once again proves that he knows how to make a profit, of course. This movie did go on to earn $16 million at the box office, or $62.9 million in today's dollars. That gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $639,000 and a profit 22 times its budget. Way to go, Roger Corman and Joe Dante. But what about China 9, Liberty 37, Andy? <laughs> Wither China 9 and Liberty 37. I've never even heard of that movie. Oh, Really? Really? Interesting. No idea. The only one in that whole list that I I know about is The Magic of Lassie. That's funny. Uh, you haven't heard of The Eyes of Laura Mars either? Nope. Wow. Every one of those is new. China yeah. 9, Liberty 37 is a Monty Hellman uh, Western film. I've, it's hard to find. I've never yeah. been able to uh, track it down, um, but it is one that has long been on my list to see because I enjoy watching Monty Hellman's films. Interesting. All right. Well, there we go. That's Piranha. Piranha's on the list. I think we it need is. to take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the word flickchart, it'll take you straight to the flickchart database where you can add it to your list. See how it stands up against ours. First up, Piranha or Il Postino, the postman. Oh, I hate Il Postino. Yeah, I, I will go with the postman too. They they both fit different holes. Yeah. They <laughs> Very <really> different do. holes. <laughs> Again, 
What would uh, Pablo Neruda have been writing about had he seen some piranha off the coast of that Italian shore? Yeah, I think we, I think we, I think we know. I, I'm, I'm curious to hear these. All right, Piranha or Atlantic City, Louis Malle's film. Uh, I definitely put on Piranha first. I would put on Piranha first, but I would say Atlantic City is the better, better film. Right. So I'm going to say Atlantic City. Okay. Does that you agreeing with me? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Okay, yeah, it's, Atl- it's fine. Okay, it's Atlantic fine. City, Piranha or Bull Durham? Piranha. Uh, I mean, I I feel like I, I can't say, believe you're torn on this. Why aren't we rock paper scissoring yet? I am torn on this, but I also am torn by my joy of Piranha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to say Piranha. Actually, I'm surprised right. by myself, but there you go. I'm surprised by yourself. You gave me Atlantic City. I'll give you Piranha on this right, one. I'll take it. All right, Piranha or Spies. Fritz Lang's uh, fantastic silent spy movie. Ooh. I'm going to say tough. Piranha still. Really? All right. Yeah. yeah, I'm definitely on board with Piranha. Okay. Piranha or Chinese puzzle? Piranha oh. for me. Yeah, Piranha. Yeah. Piranha or rabid? I will say Piranha. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Piranha, but it's close. <laughs> piranha or the lonely guy? That's what Piranha um, needed. More piranha. Steve Martin. Yeah, right. Piranha. I will say Piranha as well. Piranha or La Femme Nikita? Um, La Femme Nikita. Mm, yeah, I'll say Nikita. All right. Well, that puts Piranha in spot 358 on our chart. 358 out of 472 or 24%. Pretty low. Yeah, I'm I'm actually uh, surprised by that. Uh, I'm surprised did, and saddened. Uh, I'm surprised and saddened. But, it actually did much better on my own list. How did it do on yours? Yes, it did better on my chart, too. It landed in spot 1612 out of 4489. So that's about a 64%. Fascinating, Andy. It's like you and I were meant to do this. It hit 521 on 1469 for me, which is a 65%. Whoa, 65%. Yeah. Uh, now, if it, that actually feels about right, like I didn't, I didn't have any conflicts that were like hair pullers for me on on my list. And so, if I am to use the flick chart algorithm over at uh, letterbox.com/slash the next reel, then this should be three star movie. I'm kind of I'm edging that way. I had a lot of fun with it. It's not a five star <laughs> film for me. It's not a five-star film. It's a three-star and a heart for me. Yeah. It's right. it's a fun, fun movie. It's nothing great, but it's it's completely entertaining, and I had a great time with it. Excellent. Then I'm going to do that, too. Three stars and a heart. Oh. Excellent. I love it. I love it. When, yes. Uh, I love it when we finish each other's sentences. <laughs> Uh, where do we go from here? We're going to be jumping uh, a, a little ways. We're going to be going all the way up into the 90s. And we're going to look at the... Uh, <laughs> we're going into snakes, the snake territory now. <laughs> uh, we're going to be looking at the Jennifer Lopez vehicle, 1997 uh, Anaconda. <laughs> oh, Now, this, this could have been... As you watch this, everybody, if you're watching along with us, remember, this could have been a whole series on the Anaconda movies. So just remember that we're only doing this one. Crikey snakes and crocs. Yes. Right. right. It would have so, been a ten, it was a 10 You're welcome. Of right. the Anaconda and Lake Placid. <laughs> Serious. That was maybe the, the the best bullet we've ever dodged. You know, I think I think we were sold because of the series name that we came up with. Yes. Oh, it's hard to down, not yeah. love that. Yeah, Crikey snakes yeah. and crocs, yeah. All right. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always do it. Yes, they do. Uh, in this case, I went with the kids again over at Common Sense Media. Oh. And it's, it's very brief. It's very brief. But I, I was so curious after your experience watching this movie with your son, uh, <laughs> what what the other kids who who review might have said about this movie. And, and let me just say, for the record, Common Sense Media does not think this movie should be seen by anybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they say it's an 18 plus and they, they do give it a two star, uh, which is, you know, it's not great. The kids, though. Uh, let's see. One of them uh, said that uh, they they saw this movie and made them really love uh, Piranha Three Double D. But the other ones, I have I have one here from a nine year old. Wow. Okay. Okay. Right. A nine year old who gives it a one star and says that this movie shouldn't be watched by anybody under eighteen. <laughs> and their review is, it sucks. Jaws is better. <laughs> 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 oh, so, out of mouth of babes. What is there great is. about this is that of the reviews, there are only four reviews. A 10-year-old seen it and gave it one star uh, and says that 16-year-olds should be the youngest that you can see this movie. Nine-year-old who says 18-year-old should see this movie uh, and it's a one star. I do have a 16-year-old uh, young woman who says it's a four star, but be aware there's a lot of drinking, a lot of nudity, and plenty of language she says mm. and then i have a 13 year old who says that only 18 year olds should see it so the kids are too young to see this movie they all agree that older people should see this movie i think that was so way to go common sense media you've done your job but they're all over the place those kids i tell you i know they're all over the place yeah, what are you yeah. gonna do what do you got well i've got a one star from seal two over on amazon who says awful to say it was a b movie would be a tremendous compliment I don't drink, but felt like I had to after watching this piece of junk. Oh, Aquatic Killers yeah. includes alcohol. And I like that, you know, it's from a seal. Oh. I like to think that this was actually was a, a seal. Na- like a Navy seal. Oh, I like to think that it was an actual seal. Oh, no, I get what you, you mean, like the animal. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was the issue that I had. Oh, no, I'll buy that. Think I'm wrong? No, I'm all over that. <laughs> no, of course. Sealreviews.com. But, uh, hang, I got an intern. Cover.com slash seal reviews.com. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on the next reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. All right, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season 10, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. 10 seasons of this. I should be a pro by now. First up, David Fincher. This was a member bonus. Gone Girl. Aquatic Killers. Mm, Certainly not Tentacles. (laughs) Oh, In the Heart of the Sea. Nice. Here's another member bonus. John le Carre. Uh, uh, The Russia House. I love that score so much. Here's a tough one. Soviet science fiction. Ooh, uh, I have no idea. All of them? Not quite. Just Dead Mountaineers Hotel. Awesome. We've covered lots of great movies that started out as books, plays, even comics. Sources like Ivanhoe, Conan the Barbarian, Eight Million Ways to Die, The Hot Rock, Born on the Fourth of July. American Psycho, The Shawshank Redemption. 
The Green Mile, The Mist, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them, so now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.